You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources, and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm late. I'm late for the important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. You ain't never gonna be man enough. Those words would haunt me. I would hear their echo in his voice, in the squish of hunting waders stepping into a marsh, in the metallic clinking of his wrenches while he fixed the grain combine. I would hear those words every morning when I walked to the one-room schoolhouse and watered the ponderous pine. I would hear them when I was promoted to CEO, came out of the closet, got married and divorced, and graduated twice from Cornell University with a master's and doctorate, knowing my father was not present for any of it. Long after he came home from Vietnam and started fighting a different war against cancer, I would always remember that I ain't never going to be man enough. That's Trent Pressler. Trent is the CEO of Bedell Cellars, an esteemed vineyard on the North Fork of Long Island. He's the author of the debut memoir, Little and Often. And Trent is also the builder of bespoke artisanal canoes. His canoes have been called the most beautiful in the world. This is the story of what one man does in order to make meaning of the secrecy and silence surrounding his life. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Where I grew up in South Dakota was flat and void of pretty much anything. 
the extreme western part of the state where we lived, it was, you know, it's the prairie, so it's flat, there aren't many trees, but there was also some study done by a Berkeley sociologist in the, I think in the 80s or 90s, that pinpointed the most remote part of the lower 48 states. <laughs> and uh, his his barometer was, which part of the U.S., where do people live where they're furthest away from a McDonald's drive through And the coordinates, the latitude and longitude, pointed to my family's branch in South Dakota. So we were just surrounded by, by almost nothing, just grass and cattle. There were five times more cows than, than people in that part of South Dakota. What you're saying is that you could drive for hours and still be on, on the land of your ranch. Absolutely, yeah. There's even a sign, like an old billboard, in my hometown, uh, which is called Faith, South Dakota, where it's like, if you haven't filled up your car with gas now, you should turn around and go back, um, because the next station isn't like an, for another 90 or 100 miles. What was the origin of the town being called Faith? Faith, South Dakota is just so poetic and strange. I know there was a time, I believe, in the late 1800s and around 1906 when my family came from the Ukraine, where that settlement was the last stop on the railroad. The Burlington Northern, I think, was the name of it. I'm not sure which company operated it at the time. But if you took a train from New York City to Chicago and then Chicago West, like that's kind of where they, that's as far as they had built it at that point. And I think that the people who got out, you know, didn't see much when they got out. So it took an, an act of faith to sort of settle there. In fact, the family uh, lore is that my great-grandparents got off that train in faith and looked around and they felt right at home because they came from the steppes of Ukraine where basic, I mean, it's basically Siberian in nature. And they said it reminded them of home and they felt comfortable there. So that's, they were happy to settle in faith. Tell me about your mother, you know, from your childhood self when you were growing up and about your family life. What was it like to be in this vast place with many more cows than people and a one-room schoolhouse. Right. Well, it was, you know, ranch life was rough. And my mother was always, I think, I called it running interference, but she always kind of was the conduit of communication between me and my father. And she was always kind of softening the blow of a lot of the harsh things that happened growing up on a cattle ranch. So my family had about 10,000 acres of land, my father raised a couple thousand head of cattle. He farmed wheat, barley, alfalfa, many crops. And then my mom's role was to you know, keep the home. And she had a basically a master class in food production, these massive gardens and canning and preserving operations that she was constantly involved in. And I went to a one-room schoolhouse, which had eight students. And I would either walk or ride horse to get there. And... You know, mom would pack my lunchbox and kind of send me along the way. But dad was this harsh kind of cowboy, silent, stoic figure in every quintessential American cowboy uh, way that you can think of. And mom, you know, kind of, I think, shielded me to some extent as much as she could from the brutality of ranch life. And we were surrounded by death all the time, you know, killing chickens for food or killing beef cattle. Um, even our pet dogs would get run over by tractors or kicked in the head by cows or horses. Like it was <laughs> just this constant um, barrage, which I think was really traumatic for a young person. 
So I think mom did the best she could. But in dad's mind, I don't think there was any shielding us from any of it. I think he kind of wanted us to be exposed to it in a way, to see how real it is. Did that violent kind of raw kind of punishing existence, did it feel to you as a kid like that was just the world? Yes, it did. I didn't know anything else. I mean, I had, we would go to church where we were told a lot of hellfire and brimstone kind of things, but it was a very sheltered life and it didn't seem all that abnormal (laughs) that we had to get water from a pump that came out of a windmill and, you know, the water kind of ran brown for two seconds before it turned clear. That didn't seem abnormal to me. Nothing did. It was just like, well, if you wanted to watch television, Dad had to climb up on the roof of the house and turn the antennae to face the cities in the east. (laughs) And then we'd watch the TV, and then he'd go back on the roof and take the antennae down. Trent shared this upbringing with his sister, Lucinda, who was just two years older. But Lucinda's health began to deteriorate quite rapidly when she was 10 years old, and she fell down and had a seizure right in front of Trent on a dusty barnyard. Not only did her mysterious illness add to the constant barrage of trauma, but it also set in motion a family penchant for silence and secrecy. Difficult things were not spoken of. There were a lot of mysteries and secrets in our family, and that was one of the first ones I remember, where we just didn't know, what's wrong with Lucy? (laughs) Why is she suddenly, you know, unable to do the things that she could always do. And did you talk about it? No. No. It was sort of, mm, well, she's having a hard time. There was no specificity or clarity, like, here's a medical definition of what's going on with her, until much later in life, when I had to press for it and say, is there a name for this and what's wrong? And by that point, she was, you know, she died when she was 25, and... You know, by the time I really understood what was going on, I felt like I had already missed out on our whole childhood together, you know, kind of with all the uncertainty about what was happening. Was it something I was causing? I would have these nightmares where I felt like I wasn't doing enough to help save her. (laughs) And I began to kind of blame myself. I think my 8 or 10 or 12-year-old self really somehow believed that maybe I caused it or... There was this sense that maybe I wasn't doing enough to, to help her. That's the thing about silence. Where there are secrets, there is inevitably silence. And without even knowing we're doing it, we fill that silence with our own stories, our own narratives, to try to make sense of what isn't being said. In Trent's case, the stories he spun in his head made him feel guilty and helpless. Lutherans aren't big talkers, was what my dad always said. (laughs) And we weren't. And I think the unfortunate thing was that children have to fill that silence with their own imagination. And if it's not a loving environment or a warm environment, you fill that silence with negative things. And you start to blame yourself and wonder, is this silence sort of an indication that they're upset? Or is it just just how it is? That's exactly right. It's it's turned inward. Yes. Because it's this kind of shapeless thing. It has nowhere else to go but boomerang back at the child. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first time my parents ever normalized secrecy was with Santa Claus. 
I mean, it was like, it's like the first time your parents lie to you is when they say Santa Claus is real and he's going to slide down this chimney and give you presents. And I remember, you know, I think I was eight or something, and I discovered a bunch of wrapped presents in the floor in my parents' shoe closet. And I was shocked. Wow, this whole thing was a myth? And they've been keeping this secret for me this whole time? Wait, Santa's not real? And so then when I became a teenager and like I got my first copy of Playboy magazine or something, what did I do? I put it in the closet, in the shoe closet on the floor because <laughs> that's, that's where you put your secrets. Did your parents discover it? They did when I was in high school. I had like one single VHS tape of porn and one Playboy magazine and like a glass bottle of vodka. And it was like my secret vice corner. And I hid that all in the shoe closet and I, I put like a box of fish aquarium supplies on top of it or something. But my mom found it one day and was furious. What is all this? And she threw it all away. But that Playboy magazine isn't the real secret, which is that Trent is gay. He hides it from everyone, especially his parents. Even after he goes east to college, far, far away from South Dakota, at first he tells very few friends. I kept up appearances for so long. My parents belonged to a very strict sect of Lutheranism where um, it was fundamentalist and the judgmental ideals of the scripture to them were rock solid. And we were told point blank, in no uncertain terms, that homosexuals were condemned to hell forever and that I, if you were gay, you were an enemy of God. And so my whole childhood, I had been told this, even while I inside knew I was gay and I had started experimenting sexually with boys when I was a teenager, but I always had a girlfriend and I always brought girlfriends to family events. Even if I never kissed the girl, <laughs> I just would like, if there was a girl beside me, I would feel like I was fulfilling some sort of cultural milestone in the sense that I wouldn't be judged. And, you know, queer people don't grow up as ourselves. You know, we grow up playing a version of ourselves and we do these mental somersaults to try to justify who we are and, and present one thing to the world and another thing that we keep inside. And all of that erodes our authenticity and our sense of self. And it totally uh, has one purpose, which is to minimize our own humiliation and our own shame. You know, I knew that if I came out, my parents would not be okay with it. And I knew it would cause a rupture. And it's not until Lucy dies and you go home for the funeral and you bring a boyfriend of yours. Yes. Of course, I was very distraught and I wanted to bring someone for support. So I brought him with. You know, in retrospect, I think, gosh, a straight person probably would never have to think twice about bringing a significant other to a family event. It's just kind of what you would do. You wouldn't have to ask, I guess, permission maybe. But I just showed up and it was a devastating experience just because my sister had died, full stop. But then I added in this layer of complexity. I didn't consciously think that this would be the moment that I revealed my big secret. It just felt like I was so desperate for some kind of affection and some sense of security and love beside me that I didn't really feel like I had any other choice. You asked for your boyfriend, as, as far as your parents were concerned, your friend, to sit with you during the service, and you were told that's just for family, and he 
was relocated to the back row. Yes. You know, I'm there in the front row with family, and they wheeled my sister's casket down the aisle. And I look in the back, and my boyfriend's like 20 pews behind us, sitting there staring at me. And it just breaks my heart. My grown-up self just, oh, it was such a sad and devastating moment that there was a physical representation of what our place was in the world and in society and in particular in my family's structure and in the church. We were inside the very church that I knew condemned people like us. And so when you then are moved to come out to your parents, what does your father say? He said, we ain't never going to talk about that again. And it was like taking a big gulp And he was not kidding. I mean, we never spoke about it again until I saw him about a week before he died. So he doesn't blink, doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to even register. He just is kind of blank and stoic. And he says, let's not talk about that again. And you go back east and back to graduate school and back to your life. And you receive a letter? Yes, I got a letter from the Church of the Lutheran Confession, and it was essentially an excommunication letter describing that my name had been removed from the roster of membership at the church. And there was no, in classic Lutheran passive-aggressive style, there was, again, no specific mention of why. But I knew why. (laughs) There could only be one reason why. You know, it just said, you're no longer a member, and if you'd like to have individual Bible study to read scripture again. They gave me the number of some minister in Buffalo, New York, who I could go see, which I thought, you know, their goal probably would be for me to come around to being straight or something. But again, it's this silence of like, even being excommunicated was not clearly articulated to me. (laughs) Like, it's not a secret to me. I know precisely why this is happening, but people were just afraid to say things. And it occurs to me too that that means that your father must have told someone at the church. He did somehow speak of it. But then your understanding afterwards was that he and your mother never spoke of it together. They didn't. And that was equally as devastating because I'm thinking, how could you not have talked about me, your only son, and how this all unfolded? But they didn't. I asked mom later in life, did you guys ever bring this up? And she just kind of sat there silent, like there was nothing to say. Gay people were just, I don't know, something to be swept under the rug. And I knew in my heart of hearts that that's how it would go. (laughs) I thought, if I come out and when I come out, it's going to go down in such a way where I am the black sheep of the family or where we're just going to put this pot on the back burner and let it simmer for 30 years and never really check inside to make sure that the water is still there. We'll be right back. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day smart metabolic burn by brain md can kickstart your metabolism fight stubborn body fat especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey right now save over 30 percent on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease. Trent earns a doctorate and a master's. He works his way up in the wine world and ends up the CEO of an esteemed vineyard. He's living a successful life, but he never goes home again after Lucinda's funeral and his excommunication. He's completely estranged from his father, though he and his mother still talk. Then, one day, his phone rings and it's his mother, asking him to come home for Thanksgiving for the first time in 14 years. Mom, again, acting as the great intermediary between me and my father. She and I did speak through those 14 years. Often she would talk when she was at work on her landline at the University of South Dakota um, so that she wouldn't have to talk, I think, at home when Dad was around. And... We would have a relatively normal conversation once in a while, but I had almost no interaction with my father whatsoever for those 14 years. Maybe once or twice if we spoke, it was, you know, five words were spoken, like, hello, how are you, and Merry Christmas, 
and then he'd hand the phone back to mom. Very cold. You describe it in your book as a silent battle of the wills. Yes, it was. And I, <laughs> I don't know if he thought of it that way. I'll never know. But I certainly did. Um, I was angry at how I had been treated. I was angry that they couldn't bring themselves to talk about what it meant that they had a gay son. I think more than that, I was angry that they never said, I love you. And I wanted so badly for them to say it first that it became like this um, grainy undercurrent of my life where if I say I love you first, it would lose value. Or if I asked them to say it, it would lose value. I kind of wanted them to think up the idea on their own and say it. But those 14 years were the Cold War. Then mom called in 2014 and and mom and dad were kind of on the phone together and they invited me home for Thanksgiving. And I thought about it and I went. And I had just got a new puppy and a new car and I hadn't been to South Dakota in a very long time. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll just road trip out there. And I needed a break anyway. It was the holidays. and So I got in the car and I drove west. What made you, do you think, at that moment end the silent battle of wills? Why then? I knew from years prior that my dad had colon cancer. But I hadn't heard much about it. And I thought he had gotten better. But the sound of his voice on that phone call was terrifying. It was like this gruff cowboy of a man that I had always known had been reduced and his voice was like feeble and hacking and he was coughing. It sent sort of shockwaves of terror through me. This this strong man that I had hated for so many years was in a weakened state and I think that was a big part of my motivation for going back. So by the time you get this call from both of your parents on the line saying, would you come home for Thanksgiving? You've moved out of New York City. You've got this great line somewhere about um, being like too country for the city and not city enough. Oh. What? what? Uh, yeah, I, I always felt like I was too gay for the country, but too country for New York City. Mm-hmm. So just this feeling of, you know, sort of being a fish out of water wherever you were. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But then you do sort of land this really fabulous job as CEO of this vineyard, this winery. And you move to the water on the North Fork of Long Island, which is uh, a very beautiful and kind of somewhat wild and desolate place, even though it's, you know, a stone's throw from the Hamptons. It's a very different world. Yeah. It was so reassuring to leave the city. And even though it's still Long Island, it does feel the world away from New York. And You can see the horizon. Living on the ocean was such a reassuring thing for me because I realized that being among all the tall buildings, I kind of would have this claustrophobic feeling like, where's the horizon? Because in South Dakota on the ranch, you know, you're always confronted with this flat, uninterrupted, horizontal plane in front of you. And somehow that's comforting for me. I think because it means I can escape and I know like where all the exits are. In the city, I don't know where the exits are. And that's where you're living at the time that you get the call. And you have a dog who you adore named Caper. And one of the things that you write in the book is every dog of your childhood, and you you mentioned the violence on the ranch and what that life was like, but every dog was named Walter. 
And so, like, one Walter would get run over by a tractor, and then another Walter would appear, and I found that so evocative. But so you have your own dog, and that dog is not named Walter. (laughs) Right. I was determined he's going to have a unique name. But yeah, that was the sort of brutality of ranch life also. Like, oh, well, that dog got run over by the tractor. Here's another one. He's also named Walter. Mm -hmm. Just brutal. So I never really formed an attachment to any of our dogs growing up. I don't remember even how many we had. Um, They were just all one sort of generic Walter. So you pack Caper in your car and you drive west. Yes. I drove back and got there and they had Thanksgiving dinner ready. And my dad had asked me to bring a bottle of my fancy wine with me. So I had this Merlot, which was served at President Obama's inauguration. And I was so proud of this wine. And I uncorked it and poured us glasses. And, you know, I was just searching dad's face for any sort of acknowledgement or recognition that he liked it or that I did a good job making it or anything. Um, But his first response was that he said, I ain't drinking no Obama wine. Um, because he's a he was a staunch Republican, and there's a lot of red state, blue state kind of things in our dynamic as well. And but he did take a sip, and he said it was pretty dang good, which was high praise from him. So I got there, and we had this quiet, awkward Thanksgiving meal, and Mom seemed exhausted. She had bags under her eyes, and she didn't even have time to make a turkey. She was kind of a thrown-together Thanksgiving meal, and Dad looked terrible. Like, his clothes were hanging off of his bony shoulders, and the whole thing was so shocking to me. His voice had changed, his whole body had changed, and it sort of this wave of recognition came over me during Thanksgiving dinner that this was yet another secret. His cancer was yet another family secret that I didn't know how bad it was until I got there, you know, 14 years later and saw it. And years later, I would ask my mom, why didn't you really level with me about how bad his cancer had gotten? And it was, oh, well, we didn't want you to worry. (laughs) But just another example of withholding and silence, where in this case, I actually hadn't filled the void with anything negative because I'd moved on with my life and I was had this great job in New York and I wasn't filling the void with, oh God, what if they're quiet because dad's slowly dying of cancer? But turns out that's what was happening. I love that expression, filling the void. If silence, shame, and secrecy create a void, so often we reflexively feel the need to fill it with whatever. Our own self-loathing, or addiction, or guilt. But the distance Trent has created between himself and his dad has allowed him the deep knowledge that none of this is his doing or his fault. He's a grown-up, not a child. He's built his own world. I think in some ways being gay saved my life because I had to get away. I had to get away from him and the church in South Dakota. I fled to New York. And by cutting the apron strings, I did feel like I could be my own man and grow up. And in some ways, like the pendulum swung in the other direction where I didn't want to be like my dad at all. So I demonstrably will tell my friends if I love them because <laughs> I don't want the people around me to wonder how I feel. So sometimes people are like, oh, wow, you're really effusive. Like you say how you feel about me, even though we just met if I'm on a date or with friends. And I say, yes, 
I don't want there to be a mystery. If I feel a certain way, I'll tell you. During that Thanksgiving dinner, and you're realizing that your dad is a lot sicker than you had known, for the first time in 37 years of your life, he acknowledges that you're gay. Yes. It was like the earth shook. He said, whatever happened to that boyfriend of yours? And, (laughs) I mean, if I could have dropped my fork on the plate for dramatic emphasis, I would have. Because, you know, I'm looking around the room like, did he just ask me about my boyfriend? And, you know, it said many things to me, but I had had a, a relationship years before, and I had been married before gay marriage was even legal. And clearly mom had shared all that information with him because I had told mom a lot of things about my life. And I didn't think she was telling him. Clearly she was. I expected that to be a secret (laughs) because that's how I'd been conditioned. But then that was one time when she chose not to keep the secrets, I guess. So yeah, he asked me about him and I kind of said something a little bitter, like, why would you want to know? I didn't think you cared about my relationships. Even when I faked it and had girlfriends in high school and college, he never even asked about the girlfriends either. So it wasn't like he was withholding that because of my sexuality necessarily. But it was definitely a recognition of me being gay. And I was shocked and touched. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 
Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A week later, Trent's father takes a turn for the worse. Perhaps that acknowledgement at the Thanksgiving table was a form of reaching out, whether consciously or unconsciously, to mend a bridge while mending might still be possible. He died uh, about a week later. You know, in fact, the morning after Thanksgiving on Black Friday, I woke up in the house and I was all alone. Mom and Dad weren't there, and but the TV was on in the living room, and the lights were all on, and I didn't—I was disoriented. I didn't know what was going on. But after our sort of last supper, he had gotten sick in the night and had to go to the hospital. And Mom had taken him to Sioux Falls to their cancer unit, and I frantically drove there. And we spent about a day and a half together, and then it was time for me to go back to New York because I had busy things to do with my job and. We had made plans for me to come back and see them at Christmas. And so my last words to my father were, I'll see you at Christmas. And his last words to me were, drive safe, okay? And I came back to New York and and he died. (sighs) And then you having just made a round trip to South Dakota, something tells you that you need to drive back there that you're, you're not going to fly. You describe it as operating on gut instinct and that that had always served you well, something I really understand. And so you get back in the car with Caper and you drive back. Yes. There was something he had said to me on the hospital bed right before I left the first time. And he said that there were some things in the garage that he wanted me to take. And when I had gone home for Thanksgiving, I had seen that the garage was kind of in disarray and there were boxes everywhere and it looked like he was kind of cleaning it out. But I hadn't really put two and two together yet, that he was trying to give me something, something that was important to him. But then after he died and I had a split moment to even think about the possibility of going back to South Dakota, I thought, I have to drive because whatever it was he was trying to give me is probably something that I'm not going to shove in a bag to carry on an airplane. So there I was, my second cross-country road trip in a matter of two weeks with my dog (laughs) in the winter. Oh, gosh. You know, it's been six years and I'm still reflecting on this. I still just shake my head. There's something about family secrets and boxes. Boxes revealing secrets have been a motif on this podcast since the first season. Trent's story contains 
not one, but two boxes. The day after his funeral, mom and I were kind of sifting through some things in the basement. But the main priority for us that day, we had to apply for the federal government's Agent Orange Survivor Benefit. It was also revealed to me at that stage by my mother that the doctors thought that he had died from multiple forms of cancer that were likely caused by Agent Orange exposure in Vietnam. And I'd known that he had a service history in Vietnam. That wasn't, you know, a secret. But the funeral was this full military burial with like the 21-gun salute and officers folding the flag and presenting it to us. And I was baffled by the whole thing. And I, I looked over at mom during the ceremony and I said, what is all this for? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders. She wasn't sure either. She knew that there was going to be like a local military sort of representation there, but it was all more pageantry than either of us expected. So there we were in the basement. She said she needed his discharge papers from the army to put his number on this Agent Orange paperwork. So there was a shoebox that was wrapped and taped and duct taped that we brought up from the basement. And I slid a knife through the tape and opened it. And we did find the paperwork, his discharge papers, so we could finish the Agent Orange application. But I took out all the other contents of this box. And slowly we began to sort of reveal the layers of the mystery of my father's history. On the top, in this black box, we found a bronze star medal and commendation papers from the president and the secretary of the army and a notation of his heroic acts on the field of battle. And I thought, wow, dad had a bronze star. Mom, this is so great. Why didn't you ever tell me about this? And she said, I never knew. <laughs> I said, you were married to him for 40-some years? You didn't know he, had a, he won a bronze star? Well, one is a terrible word to use in this case. But he had earned a bronze star. She said she had no idea. So I was sort of reeling from the double secrecy of that, that dad had kept this a secret from both of us forever. And I think there was some shame there, obviously, what one has to do in war to earn a Bronze Star. And we also found security clearance papers for Cambodia, and we found Cambodian currency, and we found this just one simple sheet of paper from the CIA that just said, like, I, Leon K. Pressler, once I leave service, will not divulge any of the secret information that I've been exposed to or any secret aspects of my duty to the federal government. And he had checked the box and signed it at the bottom. And I set it all out on the table. And I said, Mom, you promised me you knew nothing about any of this? And she said no. And she kind of, I think, was a little defensive and maybe felt like I was judging her for not knowing. And so she snipped back at me that maybe you were both good at keeping secrets. It's one of my mom's most cutting lines that she's ever said to me. <laughs> and I'll never really know what happened. I wrote a letter to the Smithsonian, to the archives, to request more information about his service. There's nothing available. So that may remain a mystery. Yes, indeed. So mom, after the, the Vietnam revelations at the dining table, and my head is still reeling, she takes me by the hand and we go into the garage in this dusty corner with cobwebs and a single light bulb from the ceiling and 
she says he also wanted you to have this. And there were two things. There was a taxidermy duck and his old beat-up uh, wooden toolbox. And, you know, it had like a broken handle and looked like it had been kicked by a few horses. And this was not anything to write home about. This was not fancy in any way. This was an old rancher's box. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And um, Mom said, well, we thought maybe you'd find a project or, you know, at the very least, just keep it safe. And I said, well, this is it? Like, this is what he was trying to give me in the hospital? And she said, yes, that's your inheritance. And that's it. That's what I got. (laughs) Tell me about the taxidermied duck. Well, the last time I ever went hunting with my father, um, I had come home from college. We used to go hunting a lot. Um, It was one of the only true ways where I ever felt close to my father when we were out hunting and exploring nature together. And we had gone hunting one day on the Missouri River and in a foggy morning, and I had shot this wood duck. And it was this beautiful drake wood duck with all the beautiful, colorful plumage. And my father had never seen one before. Uh, South Dakota is not the typical habitat for that species. And of the many, many animals my father had killed over the years hunting or fishing. He never had anything taxidermied except for this one duck. And it was, I think, because I had in that moment told him that somehow the duck reminded me of Lucinda, of my sister, because the duck wasn't dead. When I shot it, it kind of only maimed it. It had like a broken wing and a broken leg and it was floundering and it was terrible. It was suffering. And It was up to me to snap its neck and to put it out of its misery, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. It reminded me of my sister, the way her legs would flail out when she was having a seizure. It was the same kind of thing seeing this poor little duck. And I had kind of started crying, and and he had gruffly put his arm around me and smushed my face into his canvas hunting coat. And then he snapped the duck's neck. So getting that as my inheritance as well (laughs) sent all kinds of messages. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. But I know he was clinging to it maybe for a similar reason that I remember. And there were the the sort of lighthearted moments that we shared in the outdoors. And there was the pain of losing Lucinda. And there was sort of a brief moment of affection from him where he empathized with my inability to kill something. He remembered all that. Yeah. So Trent drives home with Caper, the taxidermy duck, and his father's toolbox in tow. He returns to his home on the water, on the North Fork of Long Island. Somewhere along the way, on that long cross-country drive, he comes to the awareness of what he's going to do with his father's tools. He's going to build a canoe. So he clears out his house. I mean entirely. Because he's going to build this canoe in his living room. All of his previous possessions, curtains, furniture, rugs, suddenly disgust him. All this accumulated stuff from a lifetime that no longer really had meaning to me or reminded me of sort of a past that I'd hoped to forget. And also reminded me, actually, I think most significantly, of living a life hiding my true self. 
been living a life of secrecy. And, oh, that's the couch that I had when I was in grad school, when I was still half in the closet. Or, you know, that's the shirt I got from an old girlfriend. Or <laughs> they were each like a little memento of some secret that I didn't want to keep anymore. And I had to get rid of it all. I purged everything. I put it in a U-Haul and took it to the dump. So then you have a year, basically, because you've not only have you decided that you're going to build a canoe, but you want the canoe to be finished and ready to be on the water by the anniversary of of your dad's death. Yeah, an unrealistic deadline, I suppose. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And if I had known, I might not have even started the project. I think my blind will was probably a blessing because I just started in doing it and without much regard for the enormity of the task. You go to a, a lumber yard, and at the, at the beginning, because you're going to buy the, the wood um, to build the canoe, and it's a professional place. I mean, people go there who are doing construction and building things to buy lumber, and you have to put down the name of your business, and out of your mouth comes Pressler Woodshop, and then, like, the, the nature of your business, and you, who have never built, like, one iota of a boat in your life, write down boat building. I mean, it's just such a great, fantastic lesson in kind of this, like, beautiful audacity, because how do these things happen unless there is audacity, right? You have to think of yourself as a boat builder before you build a boat, the same way, I suppose, you have to think of yourself as a writer before you write a book. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of it that way. In some ways, it is a manifesting exercise to say, all right, well... In this moment, I'm not a boat builder, but if I say I am, then maybe I can become one. And until you call yourself a boat builder or an author, you won't be one. That's for certain. Walking into that lumberyard was like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in the land of Oz, and, and I started to dream about it. And at least for the first couple of months of the project, I did feel this sort of unbridled, optimism. Like, wow, I'm really doing this. But then I got into the meat of building this thing in the living room. And it was like this slow descent into chaos. And every time I pulled a tool out of dad's toolbox and tried to think about how I'm going to use it or apply it to the boat, it would remind me of stories from my childhood, both good and bad. Some horrible memories resurfaced and some sort of teaching moments resurfaced with my father. And you know, living with this boat for a year, it slowly began to dawn on me that I was living with this thing that was the manifestation of my grief. But I hadn't thought about it that way at all until I was well into the process. And then I thought, oh my God, this is like a sea monster here and it is taking over my life. And I was processing, you know, 37 years of angst and silence and grief and secrets, like just banging these out. And the advice from the lumberyard gentlemen, you know, don't fight the grain, follow it, was one of many. The big lesson, I suppose, in the end, the big realization for me was that I was only going to build this boat little and often. I could only do this one day at a time. And I had tried and failed. I'd started it and kind of in frustration once I like I hammered it all to bits. With your father's hammer? Yes, with my father's hammer. I mean, I 
screamed his name and and pounded this feeble attempt at building the boat in the first, let's say, the first month or so. It didn't work out right. Like, none of the joints matched. It was ugly. It fell apart. Like, <laughs> clearly, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just enraged. Enraged at myself, but also at my father. And in a sense, it was like I felt that he had given me these tools to torment me and to taunt me that I wasn't man enough and I would never live up to his ideals unless I could really figure out how to build something with these tools. And in one manic moment, I bashed everything apart and I ran out to the beach and I threw his hammer into the sea and I told him to fuck off. And it felt really good. <laughs> it felt so good. It was like a real turning point for me in the process that maybe I could start anew and I could start fresh and take it slower the second time around. It seemed like it turned into almost a meditation at a certain point. It really did. As I got into the summer of that year, the summer and going into the fall, I hit kind of a rhythm where I had been, I think, defeated and beaten down by this boat and by the years of silence and by the grief and everything else wrapped up in this boat. You know, it wasn't just a boat. There was so much weight in it with my family that kind of halfway through that year, it was like my shoulders relaxed and I kind of gave into it. Didn't give up, but I gave into it and just thought, well, this boat's in control now and I have to make my life revolve around it. And it became very meditative. I come home from work um, and glue up one strip of wood and then, you know, clean the shop and eat dinner and go to bed. Instead of trying to force it and, you know, kind of play Old Testament God to the wood, I was more submissive um, to both the wood and the boat building process, which I think is similar to writing a book, but you have to just kind of sit your butt down and do a little bit every day, and you'll be amazed at yourself over the passage of time what you can accomplish that way. Little and often, the title of Trent's book can be applied to any discipline, any art form, and also can be applied, I think, to self-discovery and to healing. None of it happens in a great dramatic rush. It happens bit by bit. It was a completely unrealistic deadline that you gave to yourself, but you did meet it. Yeah, it was exhilarating and maybe the biggest relief of my life that the boat floated, first of all. <laughs> I didn't sink to the bottom of the bay. But that I'd come around to the place where I realized I didn't need to prove to my father that I was man enough. He was already dead, and all of the secrets that he kept were gone with him. And I just had to be comfortable in my own skin if I was going to make it through this little thing we called life. And finishing the boat was so gratifying. And I thought I would be a mess of tears when I paddled the boat. I thought, oh, I'm going to go out. I'm going to just really cry this out. But I didn't. I had gotten all my crying out of the way <laughs> building the boat. And it no longer felt like this mournful act of grieving. Once I was on the water, it felt like a celebration and sort of a liberation. For me, I think from the reach of my father, in a way, that I had maybe absorbed the good and let go of the bad and 
was at peace with that. Here's Trent reading one last beautiful passage from his memoir. I nosed alongside the Robbins Island dock, and there, at last, I tethered the canoe to the dock with Dad's rope. I had arrived. I did it. I felt like I'd cry, though I didn't. I only smiled. It seemed like such a little thing and such a big thing at once, like a secret I would tell myself the rest of my life, though I didn't understand the meaning of it all yet. I sat there for several minutes, taking everything in, listening to the creaks and sighs of tiny ripples lapping against the hull. So much was unknown to me, but I didn't have to know everything. It was enough to trust that what I did mattered, that I understood the canoe's meaning without yet being able to say precisely how. I could trust my hands, knowing they built this canoe, and it was enough. It was my own sacred and mysterious life manifested in a colorful floating quilt made of wood. As I untethered Dad's rope from the dock and coiled it around my arm, I felt his presence there with me. He would always be with me, no matter what, embodied in the tools and the wood of this canoe. Through his death, Dad gave me a new life. He did. It was true. I could now rightfully call myself a craftsman and a boat builder who lived in communion with nature. My canoe was my freedom. With that understanding, some inexplicable pain deep inside me evaporated. In its place, I felt a flood of gratitude. I felt whole. I was my own man now, all of me, and I was ready to paddle home. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm late. I'm late. Very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat 
balancing glucose levels and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.